For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. What, what kind of companies do you work with typically? So civil contractors, uh, multifamily contractors, commercial contractors. Actually, we're working with some uh, manufacturing uh, companies that manufacture, um, whether it's pre-built assemblies in general, or a lot of them that we work with manufacture multifamily pods so that they come in and they just stack and they build these buildings. So it's pretty exciting. So we work with a number of different contractors and types of businesses. So if I'm a heavy civil contractor and I come to you to help us be more efficient, what does that look like? So it's interesting. Civil, in my opinion, really lends itself well to some of these systems. So I'll give you an example. You guys just went down and did a video shoot with Petticoat Schmidt. And uh, when we started, they had implemented a business system, the entrepreneurial operating system, uh, the book Traction with Gina Wickman, you know all about that. So they had implemented that, but they didn't have a project delivery system. So we went through and did an assessment, and that took about two days, met with the leadership team, and toured projects and said, okay, these are the things that you want to do. These are your key differentiators. This is what you want in your business. And every contractor that we end up working with ends up being a, a the type of company that cares for their people. So it almost always starts with training. And it continues with the implementation of, I, I hate to keep saying a word over and over, but their operating system, meaning like this is how they want to do business. And these are the key things that if they implement, um, they will get those results. So the training and the implementation of that business system, and it's reinforced through typical accountability method methodologies, and they're walking once a month. So if I engage with a heavy uh, civil contractor, the first thing I always suggest is let's go ahead and find the purpose of that company. What are they trying to do? Second, I always do an assessment. Third, um, it uh, finding out what key components of an operating system they need to implement. Fourth is always scheduling. And there's a really great way to do that. So we talk about tax planning quite a bit in the commercial world, but it works just as well with civil as well. And then third, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, getting out uh, the tools and the processes to the people in the field. And then, like I said, the field walks. Actually, we just did a video the other day. A lot of the training that's happening with at least Petticoat Schmidt is going on your platform. So once we have that system, we take those videos, we create those checklists, they go on the BuildWit platform, and then 
they have that as a reference. And when we do the field walks, we're actually able to measure and make sure that it's being implemented. Go figure. Um, <laughs> what, when, when you do an assessment, what specifically are you looking for? Like what would assessment, an assessment look like? Well, a couple things. So somebody asked me the other day, what typical things do a, does a business have to have to work well? And these are common, so I'm not going to surprise anybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> but um, we have to have uh, a really uh, good, strong, uh, clear idea of the purpose of the business and the clarity. We have to have a great leadership team in that business. That leadership team has to have a visionary and an integrator working together or else whatever we think up isn't going to get done or whatever we want to get done isn't going to drive forward, right? And then the company has to be very clear on how they want to do business. And then the key thing for me is, um, is the leadership team willing to hold their people accountable? Um, And if they're not, typically we don't go any farther. Meaning if they don't have the right people on the bus and the right people in the right seats and they're not willing to actually say, this is how we're going to move forward and we are going to protect our culture. We typically don't do business together. But if they are, they're like, yes, Jason, we're all in. We're going to make the sacrifice. We know this will take six to 18 months. Um, the assessment is looking at boots on the ground. What is happening in the field? And one of the biggest things we look at is, is what's happening in the field um, and the foreman and the workers, are they connected with the leadership of the company or is there a disconnect? And we really try everything that we can to pull those two together. And this is, I hope I'm going to say this well enough because I want to really make the impact. Most of the time, business departments like estimating, well, let's say business development, estimating, pre-construction, scheduling, uh, project management, and close out, um, accounts payable, legal, they're all in their individual silos, right? They're all like, I'm going to come up to the leadership team uh, meeting once a month or once a week, and I'm going to ask for my budget, and I'm going to do my things. What we really attempt to do is get the leadership team focused on the foreman and the workers, the boots on the ground, and have all departments create what Nicholas Motig calls flow efficiency. What that means is that uh, they understand by visually mapping it out how everything each department does leads to that foreman and those workers having the the information, the labor, the equipment, the tools, and the permissions they need to do work in the field. Once that happens and we're able to map that out, it's very easy to see what we call the red, yellow, and green. So, for instance, like with a heavy civil contractor, if they're like, well, uh, oh, and I, I actually have a pretty cool answer for you because we do a lot of work with civil folks. But once once we have that mapped out, we have the team, after the field walks, score each component part. Uh, like, for instance, let's just say a company has uh, trouble with, hey, I'm doing good work. I've got work, and it's private work, and they have high margins, but I just don't have enough people. We look at their recruiting efforts, their hiring efforts, their training efforts, what they're doing to retain, what's their HR department, right? And so they might have all of these other components in their business that are really green. They're doing well. But there's a couple as a part of the whole system that are making it break down and not be successful. So once they see that, then we map out a plan to say, okay, uh, this, this, and this are where you should focus based on your assessment. Typically, one thing that I think will really help your podcast listeners in the dirt world is almost 
Well, I almost always is a weird thing to say, but when when I visit companies, it's it's usually estimating busts, meaning we don't have the right duration for the project, and we are not estimating with the right production rates. And there's a bust, you know, maybe we have to do six inch lifts instead of twelve inch. Maybe we have to have a full time on site inspector. Uh, maybe you know whatever the case. Maybe maybe uh, they haven't looked at the. Um, soils report to see exactly how many unsuitables are in the ground. And there's a, a 200,000 or $1.5 million bust in the amount of unsuitables that have to be hauled off on this site. Obviously, additional import, right? So the main thing that I see with civil contractors are we have to get the estimating processes down to a science to where we're reading the specs, the drawings, doing site visits, doing the initial, initial job walks with the owners and that those estimates are right. Second, uh, we find that a lot of contractors in the civil world, and I love the dirt one, I love working with civil contractors, they have a problem with rework, meaning that whether we're doing grading or we're out there installing pipe or sewer or installing a water line, uh, we are not focused enough on quality and we have to go back and fix leaks. We have to go back and fix dips in the gravity lines. And that right there will save so much money. And so having quality checklists, standard inspections, start TVing the line right after the install, making sure the foremen are following their quality practices, that's really important. So I'll go back. Number one, estimating bus. Number two, rework. Number three, production loss. Meaning that there are some very key ways to maintain production that aren't well known. And so we pull in this concept called lean construction, where we work station to station or zone to zone, and we really get the productivity levels of the crew up because what we bid it at is not what the crews are experiencing or what they're able to accomplish because they have new people, the crew's not cohesive, or they're just batching and they're working all over the place. So Petticoat Schmidt, for instance, they've implemented things like training, standard training. They do time studies now. They actually watch the crew to make sure that they're finishing day by day the work that they're installing with the right quality checks. So the third big problem that civil contractors have is production loss. So estimating, and I've only got four, I hope I'm not going too long, but uh, estimating, a rework, and production loss. And the fourth one is schedule creep, meaning that because of rain delays or production loss or a crew wasn't available or you know we can't shut down this street entirely and we have to phase it out, the schedule is creeping past the substantial completion date. What a lot of people don't pay attention to is, yes, the owner gave us an extension from a time standpoint, but they didn't give us a, an extension from a financial standpoint. And so the fourth main cause for civil contractors losing money is that that schedule starts to creep, and now we're burning through labor hours, general conditions, and general requirements. So yes, we come do a custom assessment. Yes, we form a plan. Yes, we work that in through training and through accountability. But those are the four main things we see. Yeah, starting with estimating, I I do see a lot of contractors doing the work on the front end, but I rarely see there be a complete feedback loop. It it, it I've I've very often seen just there's a clear gap between estimating and the field and what they what each does. Yep. And I've always thought, and you know, me being the idiot I am, I'm like, if you guys, if this is, I'm speaking very simply and out of turn here, but if you guys talked more, I, <laughs> I feel like everything would go better for both parties. But it's, there's this point of contention between those two that I've seen quite often. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, real quick, if I if I can build on your point or just amen your point here, uh, somebody was talking about. I was learning about systems thinking the other day and how complex our organizations are. And they gave the example. They were like, "Have you ever been in a hotel?" And I'm sure you have. <laughs> been in a hotel yeah. where when you turn when you turn the nozzle. And you're trying to get it hot, like three or four minutes later, it turns hot. And you're like, damn, now it's too hot. And then you're turning it back down. And like 15 freaking minutes later, like now you finally got the temperature right. So that delay in communication, the longer it is, to your point, it's it's going to make sure that you're never adjusted and you're never balanced. I thought that was a really neat analogy. So 100%. Yeah, it's it's. Um, and I just talked to somebody about this the other day, too. I feel like one of the flaws in construction estimating is oftentimes it's based on historical numbers that are not necessarily accurate. Mm-hmm. They think they're accurate, but I was talking with someone who runs a, a software company that basically uses AI and video to compare what a general contractor says they've done versus what they've actually done. Yeah. And almost every time there's wild inaccuracies. And so they use that real data to say, no, this is where you're actually at so that they can they can better uh, catch themselves slipping off schedule. They can they can get everybody the right information, that kind of thing. Um, And I feel like it's similar. That's what the GC world. But I think it's across the board in the construction world that we're using these production rates, these historical rates that aren't necessarily completely accurate. I agree. And, you know, to, to build on your point, like one thing that, and I hope I don't shout out Petticoat Schmidt too much and ruin your podcast, but no, keep shouting they, them out. They're great. Yeah, they're great. And so they, they are utilizing heavy job um, so well that they are uh, tracking current production rates in the market conditions that we have today and not just using the historicals. And then one other thing I would, I would say um, we, there's a company that I was working with in Texas that does civil work, and it turns out that the leader, and, and I'm not faulting anybody, it was just a part of the system breakdown, but the leader was saying, we got to bid more work, we got to get more work, we got to get more work. And so the estimators were just rush, 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 using those old historical data, not going to the job walks not doing a detailed bid review, not digging in to the specifications like they should, and just producing more of less quality work. And so they were getting more and more uh, projects, but not the right kind. And so Petticoat Schmidt has this really fun thing they say, win a winner, meaning we only want to get jobs that are in our red zone. And so having that be a visual uh, measurement, to your point, having the time to get accurate production rates, like you're saying, is really huge. Uh, because uh, ever oh yeah, let me just say this: every civil contractor I've worked with, the comment comes uh, that hey, once we get rid of these bad jobs, we'll be in a good spot. Uh-huh. Well, why do we have bad jobs in the first place? Uh-huh. It's because we're rushing to get work and we're not getting the right work. So, sure. amen. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. I and I'm seeing a lot of companies growing right now. By growing, I mean winning a lot of work but they're not totally sure in how they're going to go build the work and they're getting really <laughs> nervous from a workforce standpoint. And, and my mind goes to like, okay, you, you can grow, you can bid this work, you can win this work, but should you be doing that right now? If you're worried about how you can produce for your existing backlog, but there's, yeah. they're just, there's such this hunger, which I totally understand in business. You just want more and more and more and more 
and it's really easy to get out ahead of your skis. The nice thing with my business is we're in a software world in some of our business now, and you can make adjustments very easily there. But in construction, if you pick up a bad job, that's 18 months. That's two years. That's three years, potentially, you know, potentially years that you're stuck with a turd before you can get over it. <laughs> 100%. That's tough. Yeah, that's tough. And and to your point, like there's some clients that we work with. I'm like, we, I, I tell people, hey, we've had really great re- track record, a really great track record and great results, but it won't happen right away. So month three, they're like, wait a minute, well, Jason, when is this going to happen? Month six, when's this going to happen? And we're making great progress and getting everything back to where we're at least in the positive. But you don't see the massive gains to where you're at 12 14, 16, 18% gross profit to your point un- until you've gotten rid of those bad jobs and they have such a long runway. It's insane. So a hundred percent. I really think uh, one little nugget people should take from our podcast, unless you have it on previous episodes is we've got to ask ourselves every bid. Do we like doing this work? Are we good at it? And does it pay well? And if not, regardless of whether we think we need it, don't sign up for it. It's got to be yeah. in those three circles. It's got to be in that middle. Yeah, I think if if the industry needs to become a little bit more disciplined because everybody's getting squeezed by general contractors, by project owners, by material suppliers, by uh, equipment provider, every contractors are getting squeezed. They're at the very bottom, especially like subcontractors, especially heavy civil contractors. But like a lot of people say, it's just out of our control. And I'm like, well, yes, but what's in your control is what you bid. And if you start pushing back on some of these things and just say, we're not bidding this anymore, like that's to me the only way that will systematically change some of these things that are screwing people right now, like contract terms, like there's all kinds of stuff that at face value is out of a contractor's hands. But at the same time, the contractor has the ability to decide what they are and aren't going to bid. I agree. I agree. And I don't, I don't know if I'm, if I'm talking too much, but the, one of the things that as I was in, I was a general contractor, worked for general contractors for 23 years. And, um, I played the game. I, I hope to, I like to think that I did better job and was more honest than most. But the, the, what I like, love to tell people is the general contractor is going to be pissed at you either way. They're going to be mad at you. If you do it, they say and can't make the date because they've pushed you in an impossible situation. And if you ask for what you need, they're going to be mad at you. So damned if you do and damned if you don't. So you might as well just ask for what you need and start bidding it the way you need. The other thing that I've noticed. When I work with companies, and I actually experienced this as an employee, like I'll give you an example. One time I said, hey, if we don't have the right schedule duration, we need to, to have a candid talk with the owners. And they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. We'll lose the job. Jason, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I experimented with it because I was a project director and I, I had the authority. 85% of the time, the owner was like, oh, okay. If I could show them a good plan, they're like, okay, that's reasonable. And they hired us for the team. So to your point, like, I don't believe it, man. Like, I don't believe that we're victim of circumstance. The thing that I realized the other day, we've always had supply chain interruptions in our industry. We've always had labor shortages in our industry. It's always been there. We know how to overcome this. I feel like COVID-19 and 2020 
probably just gave us more of an excuse and we let ourselves off the hook a little bit more. We know how to manage these things. We've got to do the right thing, like you say, get out ahead of it and ask for what we need, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that, that, that thought and that fear of losing the job. I see, I see that a lot. But yeah. I think most people are reasonable. So if you tell them this is what I actually need and this is how long it's going to take, they're probably going to, like, like you said, they're probably going to be like, okay, thanks for being honest. Most people aren't yeah. honest and we run over on every project, but this seems like a much better plan. So let's go in this direction. And then if they tell you to kick rocks, you know, maybe that's an opportunity to question who you're working for in the first place. And I, I wish all of the the rankings of contractors in especially the heavy silk, like ENR 400, number one contractor, number two contractor, we made the top 400. I would love to see that ranked by profitable. I would, I would, because it's all revenue and it's like, that's great. But like what hurts the industry in a lot of ways is the really low margins contractors run at. And so in the ENR 400, the top hundred contractors are probably running a margin between three and 5%, which is to any other business criminal. And who would do that? That what who would take on that much risk for 3%. And then, so you have the companies not not managing everything effectively and running at that really slim margin so that they don't have enough to really invest in their people properly, which is leading to even further workforce problems. And then they have their workforce not really understanding the finances of a construction company because everything is so shrouded in secrecy that they're thinking they're getting screwed by the man, but the man's not making very much money to begin with. It's just, (laughs) there's just, there's, there's mistrust and misinformation on all sides. Yeah. And I would say, you know, the other thing is I I really do feel like, so owners do need to start only hiring. In fact, I did a podcast on this, or I can't remember where it was. It was either on LinkedIn or a podcast, like, what is the criteria for hiring a contractor, right? We've got to start, owners have got to start hiring people that care about people. Um, you know, but part of it is that the contractors are not being transparent enough. So every contractor says we have a delay or it's going to cost this has all of their information. I think you used the word it was shrouded or it's hidden. So they don't know who to believe. So it's quite a surprise to most of these owners to get a transparent contractor that will show them the data, the finances and the schedule real time with accurate information. And like you said, 85% of them, from my experience, are reasonable. So. You know, you have brought up communication over and over. I mean, my goodness, um, like it just really comes down to that. And you said something really simple. You're like, if we would just talk to each other, like <laughs> instead of hiding behind emails and contracts, like yeah. let's just have a candid conversation and then reinforce it in contracts, we'd yeah. be a whole lot better. So, well, yeah. um, uh, I was talking to a business owner the other day, and he says that's that's one of the big problems he's noticed in the industry over the past thirty years is everything for the most part, used to be done on a handshake back in the day. And then the internet came about, contracts came about, lawyers came, you know, started to pop up everywhere. And and then emails, and and now everything is done over email. Everything's done behind contracts. Everything's about litigation. And now everybody is constantly just defending what's theirs rather than proactively working together and how it used to be in a lot of ways. And, And he said that, I'm like, that's an interesting take. I completely see it. I completely see it because it's yeah. when lawyers get involved, there's only one party that wins in that situation. It's yep. not it's not the contractor. It's not the owner. It's the lawyers. The lawyer, the house always wins. 
And I see a lot of contractors even caught up in litigation. Like these, these contractors are caught up in litigation for years sometimes. That, like as an owner, if you're caught up in a big lawsuit, just the stress and distraction of that lawsuit, the, just the amount of energy you're dedicating to that, that could be dedicated on the company itself and on the team itself and on bidding the future work itself. But, but people are just so distracted that they, they can't afford to focus on what, what actually is important. I agree. And it's, it's, it's almost like you've, you've heard self or why well, anybody listening to the podcast has heard like self fulfilling prophecies, right? If you're super jealous with your spouse or your girlfriend, yeah. the thing that you're afraid of, your behavior is now going to cause, right? Yeah. And so the contracts that people have locked all of us into are causing a lot of these delays in the first place. Totally. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I, for example, my dad's a lawyer, so I got to see some of the tricks growing up. And I, um, you know, I, I've signed a lot of leases. I've lived in 10 places in the past 10 years. I just signed a, a new lease for the place. I moved about a month or two ago. And the, the lease typically is the standard renters association or whatever stupid association, like standard <laughs> boilerplate lease that's 53 pages and just bends you over. I'm the landlord. You're you're the lessee, you're screwed. And oh, you're going to push back on it? No, it doesn't work that way. Sign it or get the hell out of here. And the lease I just signed was two pages. And I said to him, I appreciate this. I really yeah. appreciate this. And my level of trust for him is higher than any other person I've rented from because I'm just immediately disarmed. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Like we're adults here. I'll pay you on time. You won't screw me. That's all we need. Great. Yeah. But if you come at it with these big contracts trying to protect you from every possible thing, now now I'm on my guard. Like if you're here to fight, oh, okay. Well, I'm smarter than you. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to fight. Or even if I don't think I'm smarter, my lawyer has to justify their hourly rate they're charging me. So of course they're going to say, "Hey, they're really bending you over here. Let's let's tweak this, let's tweak that." And then all of a sudden you're on the 7th revision of some contract that's insane to begin with. Yeah. And you real quick, there's one key point in there that I hope everyone's listening to. Everyone said, well, so there are people right now, well, not right now, well, right now when they're listening to the podcast, <laughs> they'll be listening to it being like, well, yeah, Aaron, but you've got to protect yourself and blah, 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 and blah, blah. Yeah. I, I spend more time making sure that it gets built right the first time than I do trying to see why if we mess it up. Like a good example is with mm -hmm. serving. Uh, I used to, uh, when I worked at Hensel Phelps, we had field engineers and we had surveyors checking. And they were like, Jason, I want more surveyors in here. I want to spend more money, do less work with field engineers in case we mess it up. Um, now it's on them. Well, first of all, I've never really heard of anyone taking, go, you know, uh, taking a surveyor to task and, and fully uh, having them pay for the consequences. Second yes. of all, if you have a survey mistake, you're up shit creek without a paddle. Uh, thirdly, we could have spent this time actually checking the damn survey with our field engineers in partnership with the surveyors from the beginning to make sure we didn't lay out the damn thing wrong in the first place. So I, I do understand there has to be some shedding of risk. But to your point, what people don't understand is that all of these things, and especially teams, are complex systems. And energy, once it's taken from here, uh, 
or, ta- or has to go here, it's taken from here. And so as, so as we spend more time, I hope people are listening to you, as people spend more time DYAing, doing documentation, paperwork, and especially the emails, you're taking it away from the preventative care, from the proactive prevention of the problem in the first place. And I just wish more people understood that. That's, I think that's a great point. I think engineering is a great example of that exact thing is, is how everything is super over-designed because there's this terror that is if I put my stamp on something and it fails, I'm going <laughs> to end up in prison. And, and, but you then ask the question like, all right, so how many engineers have really been criminally tried and, and, and put in prison for, for negligence, for, 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 for failing to do it? And I like, I would, I would be shocked if the list was, I mean, more than a few names, if that. Yeah. yeah. But well, yet, that's, that's just what people believe. So then, every, like, that's standard practice, just over, way over engineer things. So I don't have to worry about that. Exactly. And back to your point, most of the time it comes back down to who has the best lawyer anyway. It's not really based on data. <laughs> or, or, or even worse, who has the most money? Yeah, because has, even if even if my lawyer sucks, like I can just outlast you. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. There was a company I heard the other day, and I haven't dug too deep into this, so take this with a grain of salt. But there was a company that did a study on daily reports. You know, you know how many labor hours go into creating daily reports, and they found it very difficult to find where a daily report had ever benefited a court case in the history of the company's existence. <laughs> and wow. then there was, a, there was another one where we always talk about scheduling, you know, Hey, we, and I get a pushback a lot because I, um, it, encourage a scheduling system that really protects trade flow in our trades in the industry. And so, but we always default back to uh, CPM and the critical path. And they're like, well, we have to do this. We have to do this because if it gets in the court of law, if it gets in the court of law, if it gets in the court of law, I have never found and have challenged many people. I've, and I have uh, worked with companies that have done research and have not found a single case where those schedules have actually helped them win a court case. It all comes down to the lawyer and they can make the data say whatever they want it to say on either side. So to your point, there's, I would bet there's, it has got to be. Oh, and I saw, I know I'm ranting on and on, but let me say this. I worked with a developer and multifamily builder in Canada. And so they do their own development and their own construction. So they don't have a, a huge formal process for RFIs, for change orders, for payments, for uh, contracts and things like that. It's very uh, seamless back and forth. And they make so much money to, uh, to the point, and I won't tell you who it is, but um, they were able to, re- uh, without consequence, Eliminate the position of project engineer and project manager on every project. And these are $35, $40 million projects on every project. And the superintendent with his or her assistants are able to effectively manage those projects and maintain a work-life balance. That's at least two to three positions on every project, plus the labor hours, plus all of the other support staff. They must be saving um, per project at least twenty-five. dollars to $45,000 a month, just from the lack of, or the less, or unnecessary paperwork that they don't have to do just to CYA. I don't know if that puts it into perspective, but I was blown away by that. Sure. Well, when I was, when I was a young engineer on, 
um, public works projects, that was pretty much all you did was paperwork and <laughs> to make sure our I's were dotted, T's crossed. The What you brought up about quality control is, I think, very interesting too and almost never talked about. Like I was trying to think about that point. I think it's obvious to build things right the first time. But the amount of rework out there is substantial as well, mm-hmm. which adds no value. It only subtracts from the industry that's already mm-hmm. overworked and already squeezed in a lot of different ways. I I just I don't think people are even aware of it. The the magnitude of rework in the industry. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I think it's because they don't know the well, I mean, we all a little bit know what the consequences are, but I was presented uh, uh, had somebody present a study to me the other day that said on average, like if you spend a thousand and this this ranges, you know, considerably, right? The so like I'm in a, I'm sitting in a unit in a multifamily development, right? If somebody messed up the carpet to replace the carpet, it's probably near one to one or one to one point five, right? But for most construction, it's a one to eight, meaning if it costs a thousand dollars to install something right the first time, it's gonna cost eight grand to replace it. And and wow. the impact to the schedule is insane. So usually it's about one point five and on the higher end, twelve times the cost and time to replace it. When that when they presented that study, I don't have it right here on hand with the references, but that study, I was like, oh my goodness. And then if you think about it on a civil project, right, you're installing a water line. When you have water leak, you're not just opening up the excavation now. You're going through the lime rock, you're going through the asphalt, you're doing traffic control, sometimes you're breaking through the curb, and of course that at least costs four or five times. So your your point is spot on. I would rather a crew go a little bit slower and just do it right then go fast and batch the work and have water leaks all over the place and have to fix dips all over the place. And let me just say one more thing, because I know you got a bunch to say. I, when we start getting civil contractors to work by zone on like a site development project or a mass excavation project, or if we're installing pipe by station, or like, let's say, hey, by every day, we can do 180 linear feet of this a day. When we say, hey, this is it. And, you know, yes, you're going to come pave it all at once at the end. Yes, you can't do that right now. But for at least the pipe installation and backfill and the QSA, just do this now. And don't go to the next station until you're done. And that mindset shift is huge. And to your point, that's when people start to save a lot of money. So go ahead. I just, I totally agree with that. No, I, that's, that's all. You're, I'm here to listen to you, not the other way around. <laughs> Um, how, so, uh, like, how do you, how would a contractor QC everything as they, as they work? Yeah. At what? Like, like, like what, what are some examples of, of con- like something a contractor can do to QC a little bit better as they work? All right. I, I got it for you. So, uh, first of all, and we can, we can link this to the podcast if you want, but there's a, uh, YouTube channel, leansuperintendent.com on there. I've got some videos of how Petticoat Schmidt does it. So first and foremost, uh, for their uh, installations, for their work, they do a pre-activity meeting. 
And what they do on their first pre-activity meetings, they go through and say, what are the key things that we want to do for this work? People listening to this podcast might be like, Jason, I install pipe all the time. This is easy. Well, when I went and looked at how work was being installed, it is very inconsistent, even for something as simple as just installing a, a water line. It's not even a water main. It's not even a public utility project. Um, where they put the trace wire is different. How they... Um, uh, you know, hone the pipe is different. How they're backfilling near the joints is different. How they're actually inspecting and initialing the installation of the joints is different. How they're backfilling is different. Like everything, like you, you would think, hey, it's just installation of pipe, Jason. We got this. No, there's at least even down to as built how they're doing their invert shots. There's at least. Six to 15 key things that should be done consistently throughout the company that must be written down. And so at Petticoat Schmidt, uh, the quality department, and this was one person. So if people are like, I don't have a quality department, you can still do this. And if you join Nuka or BuildWit, uh, Petticoat Schmidt might even share these things with you. Just go down and visit them sure. in Jacksonville. You know? so, yeah. so they have these booklets that are all laminated. And the foreman, every morning in their job briefings, they, they will open it up and say, hey, we're installing structures today, dot, 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 and they will review it. And the last, the last four, uh, it gets even better than this, the last four um, job walks that we did around the company, every form, now they, have, they only have 136 uh, uh, field employees, right? They're, they're like at 86 million, and they'll scale, and they'll do it at larger scale, but every single job, Every foreman reviewed that checklist that morning. Every crew was using a checklist. Every pipe I saw had the initials. Every bit of as-built, every truck of foreman had their as-built up to date. Every auto level they were using was using the standard form. And so they really made that a science. Now, I, this sounds like a shout-out to the built web platform. I'm just telling you real data. They took those checklists and filmed the crews installing that piece of work uh, put it on the build with checklist. Uh, they used to have them attached with QR codes. I think they still do. But on the checklist, you can access the build with platform, which I don't know if companies know this, but you can put your own content inside your own profile. And that yeah. links the person to the installation. So they're having a lot of, uh, you know, trying to find good people. That's one thing, but you'll have a lot of turnover as you're trying to hire the right people. The other question is how quickly can you onboard them? So these foremen are having them watch the videos and follow the checklist. So while they're finding the right people, they're not installing defective work. That is exactly no deviation, exactly 100% how Petticoat Schmidt's doing it today. I, I've never seen that something that simple standardizing here is exactly how we do it here i've never seen that i think it's it's always just assumed that everybody knows what they're doing or i've been doing it for 30 years i know what i'm doing or yeah these these this crew's experience they're good to go they they might be good to go but that's fascinating just standardizing it and reviewing it every day every day and the other thing is i have a high respect I have a high respect for our field uh, workers and craft uh, and our foremen like you do. And I, I believe they're the best. And somebody said, you expect, not me, but they were talking to somebody else, but hey, you expect 100% work or quality of work or production out of these crews and you give them 1% training. 
And it, it yeah. just has to stop. And I would say the biggest thing I've learned, and I did learn it in the civil world. I'm not just saying that because I'm on a Dirt Talk podcast. But one thing I learned doing civil work because there's shorter, shorter turnaround times is that, um, and I'm just going to say this. I hope I don't piss anybody off. But nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody in our industry from project director to from CEO to project director to superintendent to foreman to worker, no one has any idea what they're doing. In 2007 and 8, we stopped training. We lost track. The old timers uh, retired or quit. And we haven't been training anyone very well since. And so we've got to get that back. And so if we assume one, even one time that somebody, hey, they, obviously they work somewhere else, they must know what they're doing. Hey, they're good people. They're a cultural fit. I, I'll go drink beer with them. I love them. They're great. But nobody took the time to train them, so they are not trained. So I have to do it. It's just like with surveying. If yeah. we go out and, and lay out points or pull a tape, we're like, yeah, that must be right. Well, if we don't double check it, we don't know. If we assume everything that we do the first time is right, we'll never double check it, and we will have a bunch of crap wrong. And so if we hire people and assume they know what they're doing, and we never take the time to train them, we will end up with the same problem. And so I think saying that isn't disrespect. It's actually a, no, I'm not going to assume. I'm going to train you because I respect you. So um, I am overwhelmed at how often, because the uh, company leaders are not clear, it's not done even in its basic form. So what you said is 100% accurate. I couldn't state it better. Well, that, that lack of training, it, it, it comes in a few ways. It's kind of compounded because we've eliminated a lot of the entry-level positions now where mm -hmm. that provided some of the best on-the-job training. So that's, that's, that's out the window. Uh, more people than ever before are coming on the job sites with no background working at all, like me. You know, people that just show up. I'd never worked in my life until I stepped foot on a job site. I didn't know how to use a ratchet strap. I didn't know how to use a shovel. I didn't know how to sweep properly. I didn't know any any of the basics whatsoever. We have um, really expanded our uh, focus on safety, which is good. But in doing so, we've eliminated the ability to make any mistakes whatsoever, yep. or else you're fired. So you're terrified the entire time. There, there's just there's 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 so many so, so many missing pieces to it. And and I read uh I recently read a book written by Danny Meyer, who's a, a, a world-renowned restaurateur in, in New York City. And he recognized kind of 10 years after he started his restaurants that, hey, I just assumed people would know how I wanted them to act. But that yeah. was completely incorrect. I needed to explain everything yep. down to every single detail. And if I didn't do that, it was completely unreasonable for me to expect anything out of them in return. Yeah. And and I think where we just make the expectation of well they know what they're doing. And I I even see this on social media. Social media is amazing because I'm connected with people in the industry from all over the world and I get to see I get to see it in person and I get to see it online. I see people all the time say, "Well, that's not the right way to do it." And I'm like, "How how do you know the right way to do it? How how do you know your way is right?" Because even if your way is quote unquote right in Jacksonville, Florida, yeah, it's completely different up just up the road in Savannah, Georgia. Hundred percent. Like, 
it, it, it's it's you know what's what's right i i don't know what's right i don't know what right is how, how do you even define that um yeah. it just it drives me crazy when people criticize oh that's not right i'm like how do you know yeah yeah and the other thing is I, you know to your point like companies can establish minimum baselines like this is the minimum but you're free, you're free to take it as far as you want from here um, totally agree. The other thing is, I think people that are trolling people on LinkedIn probably have too much time on their hands. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, oh boy, yeah. yeah. So I won't even get yeah. into that. But I, a couple of points I wanted to touch on there is like the uh, the I don't know if you I, one of these days I want to ask when we have more time ask you about your experience as a field engineer. But I loved my experience as a field engineer at Hensel Phelps, and every company I go to, I'm like, they're like, how do I train the next level of superintendents? Um, and I'm like, start a field engineering program, like give them an opportunity to get out there and get dirty with the teams, with the, yeah. with the people boots on the ground. And very few people take me at face value, but I, I feel like they've got to do what you said and get those entry level positions back hundred percent. You just have to. Well, and, and even if you don't necessarily need them as a business, mm-hmm. <laughs> you might still need them as a business because that might be your best pathway. Yeah. to create those experienced people you need. We did a we did a study, uh, but this isn't like well like a uh, university sanctioned like white paper study. But we did we actually studied it in companies the superintendents and PMs that would get stuck at PM or super level one and two. Uh, we saw a pattern. They did not come from the foreman ranks, the survey ranks, or have time as a field engineer. They, and I'm not I'm not dissing this. I'm saying the people that come directly out of school deserve better. I'm not saying they're evil or they did something wrong. The they the people that got stuck came directly from that school position or that craft level position, never got a chance to do those builder things, right into an assistant superintendent role. Then they get stuck because they never learned those builder techniques. And then we started looking at general superintendents, directors, office managers, vice president. Every one of them either built houses where it came from the craft, where a foreman uh, spent time doing surveying, or were field engineers, and yeah. it 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 that time accelerated the um, their their career path. And let me say one more thing, real quick, um, to back up the skill gap. And uh, the people I'm talking about right now in my example are great people, and after the right training, and now they're running great jobs and they're doing a great job. But I have start. I have gone to uh, super PM boot camps that we host at Elevate, and said, "Okay, let's go ahead and do a baseline and create a quick three week look ahead schedule for this little wall in the set of plans." And I have had classes where no one could do it. They they didn't know how to research the drawings and they didn't know what a simple Gantt chart is. That's not a criticism. That's a oh my gosh. If you asked everyone who knows how to schedule, they would all raise their hands, and none of them could create a basic schedule. Go to field engineering boot camps, uh, the FEP boot camps that we do out in the field, which one of these days we got to do one together, Aaron, 100%. Like yeah. have, I mean, like host it together. But um, And we're like, hey, let's do some of these basic skills. And they're like, yeah, all of us can run a level. All of us can tie a string. All of us can. We, we, th- uh, nobody can even set up a batter board. Now, again, that's not a criticism. It's a you should know. You deserve how to know to do this. If you're going to go do other things and even Q, how can you QC the work as a superintendent if you don't even know how to do the work? So we have got to get back to that. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I don't think you need to spend even all that much time in the field to get Agreed. it. 
Like, I, I, th- I think you just, if nothing else, you just need a overall appreciation and respect for the field. Mm-hmm. Like, that, I think that's really all you need to go really, really far. And, but there are a lot of kids that go down. It's mostly the, it's, it's almost always the GC path. Mm-hmm. They'll get in with the big GCs and they'll be in an office for three months. They'll be in a job trailer for three months. They won't get out onto the site whatsoever. And meanwhile, I was with Kiwit, you know, tossing around tens of thousands of pounds of explosives in a three month period, getting my ass kicked every day, doing some of the paperwork, but it was just, it was straight up manual labor that I was doing yeah. as well because I was an extra pair of hands and they didn't have to go hire a, <laughs> they didn't have to go hire a laborer. This is great. Let's use this kid. And, but that was, um, th- that was the best, the best experience I could ask for out of that, out of that. Pro- I, I, I felt so bad for the kids that worked at the same company, but didn't leave the office all summer. Yeah. I just, they were in an estimating office all summer. I'm like, that's great, but I can get that later. I can't, I can't get this later. I need to mm-hmm. do this now 100%. while I'm young and hungry. Um, and you can, there's that missing link. You can, you can see it. You, it's, it's glaring when somebody doesn't have that, that field experience, even if it's just a little bit. Awesome. I agree. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, Aaron. I got, I got about 10 minutes before I got to hop onto a plane. What, what can I do to really add value on this podcast before I leave you? What do you got for me? Yeah, 100%. They use the entrepreneurial operating system. And uh, let, me, let me tell you a story. I, hope that it, I, I don't think this is confidential, but when we first started implementing uh, some of these lean practices and created a, uh, op- a project delivery system, meaning they created it and they worked with me on it, and they deployed it, trained on it, and held people accountable to it, they, through that open book system, wanted to incentivize their people. And so if you read, you know, what the heck is EOS or traction, you know all about that, right? So, and a lot of businesses are using that. So their gross profit, and I won't give numbers because I didn't get permission to do this, but their gross profit rose to a certain level to where um, all of their supervisory staff and foremen and people were able to get a massive, out here, I'll just give you a percentage. It would range anywhere from 5 to 20% of their salary. And uh, from an incentive standpoint because of the increase in gross profit. And but while not screwing the owners, by the way, this all comes from baseline production and the elimination of waste. I do want to, in case any customers or, you know, <laughs> petty coaches may listen to this podcast, they're not, they're not leeching you. They're getting this, but at normal margins because of increased productivity. So this year they're on target to do at least twice, if not two and a half, three times the amount of incentives that they did in 2022. And I just think that's amazing. And it's because everyone can see they're all incentivized together. They're working together as a team. It's amazing. So I go ahead. Sorry. I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. And it, by the way, I just want everybody to know, I not only does Aaron know a bunch of contractors that do systems like this, but if you go, we should do more sharing in this industry 
um, you can call Lauren Atwell or Ryan Schmidt and go down there and tour and see how they do it. Everything's open book, and they'll show you the numbers. And so you'll see what Aaron's talking about is 100% correct. And you, every Monday, they call it the best meeting of the week. Everyone in the company, and not everybody makes it every Monday, but can sign in and see the financials on a weekly basis to do exactly what you're talking about. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Are you... Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, thank you for asking that. So we, so uh, the podcast that we have at Elevate Construction is more of a training podcast. And so if somebody, whether you're in the dirt world, you're in the civil, uh, same thing, civil world, uh, the, you're in commercial construction, you're in industrial, that podcast is specifically designed to take the best knowledge that we can find for lean construction, operational excellence, best teaming, great business practices, and really put it into practical podcasts. We're at episode 812. And our books are on there for free. So that's one of the main places. Um, our YouTube channels, obviously. So two that I have asked people to check out is the Jason Schroeder channel. We answer the most frequently searched questions for construction on that channel. But if you want to check out the Petticoat Schmidt ones, so specifically for the dirt world, it's almost providential. <laughs> um, I, probably the last five, six, seven videos that were posted on that channel are from Petticoat Schmidt. So you'll go in, you'll see their operating system, their auditing system. Uh, you'll see their QC checklist, their, their survey checklist, um, how they're doing their time studies, all of the cool stuff that you might be listening to this podcast and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. I'll show you videos. Just go to the Lean Superintendent channel on YouTube. It's right there. And you can go tour and check it out as well. So that's probably one of the main ways uh, to check us out. And um, and then the other one is LinkedIn. Uh, we just love sharing content through LinkedIn. So you can search my name, Jason Schroeder, or Elevate Construction. We're trying as fast as we can to give real uh, advice to leaders so that we bring respect back to workers and foremen so leaders can really have, a, and also leaders have a good experience at work so everyone can go home to their families safely and, and healthy and have a good time uh, doing it. And so uh, we have dedicated, so if we look at like where we are in the industry, there's some people that are really focusing on like interpersonal skills. There are some people that are really making uh, the the constructions industry looks sexy, and uh, that's an oversimplification. But you're doing a great job of that in the marketing and the awareness. We see ourselves as the hey, if you want practical, non-theoretical advice on how to implement what you want to implement, that's what we're attempting to share as fast as we can. We want the systems and the leaders to be prepared to do the things that we're talking about, the things that you market, and to have the kind of relationships that the industry is looking for nowadays. And I'll just close out with one thing, um, because we've got to get there. Uh, everything that we need to know to run remarkable projects, whether they're in the dirt world or commercial world, we know today. We just need to get it done and stop treating people like crap and pissing them off because our workforce is starting to get wise to the fact that we don't care about them and want them. And so now they're not coming. For every person that enters, five leave. And so 
we are attempting as fast as we can to create an environment through systems and the training of people so that we can finally provide that respect and get people back into an industry that I think is just the freaking coolest thing on earth. It's just been so good for me, and I'm sure it has for you too. Yep, I'm super stoked about that, 100%. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, it's been fun. Sorry about the time constraint. I appreciate what you're doing. I know you get that a lot. And I love that we're partnering together. One last thing I'll say is like I the 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 backbiting and the competition and the the toxic uh, toxicity of a lot of different companies does not exist between uh, companies like yours and mine. I love the partnership we have. I think we're just uh, you you and we are just doing really great things, and we appreciate. It. And I want to say thank you to every one of your listeners and everyone that's out there in not only supporting the social media, the podcast, the efforts, but also bringing awareness because we are making a difference and we have better days to come. So just really appreciate you and your audience. So it's been a pleasure. <laughs>